Hello there. Welcome to Can't Make This Up. If you're new here, my name's Kevin. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know what I just did at the beginning of the show. Uh, Today's episode, uh, I'm pretty excited about. My guest today is Dean Job. Uh, If you've been listening for a while, you are familiar with Dean. This is his third time coming on to the podcast. Uh, He is a true crime author, uh, and he is also a professor of creative nonfiction uh, at the University of King's College in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, Today, he joins us to talk about his most recent book, newly in paperback here in the United States, uh, The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream. Uh, This book has been uh, doing really well. Uh, It won the inaugural CrimeCon Clue Award for uh, True Crime Book of the Year, Uh, and it was even long-listed on the American Library Association's Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. Uh, This is a very good book, and uh, Dean has been recognized quite a bit for it, and well-deserved. So very much looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, We talk about Dr. Cream, who, uh, known as the uh, Lambeth Poisoner, uh, was a serial killer in the late 1800s, at the same time uh, that the world is becoming uh, infatuated with detective stories like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so it's an interesting period to take a look at. We're going to learn a lot about Victorian culture, a lot about uh, law enforcement and detective work at the time, uh, and we're going to learn about a very interesting murder case. So I hope you'll enjoy this and that you'll uh, stick around. If you are interested in checking out Uh, Dean's previous appearances on the podcast where he talked uh, about a 1920s swindler. Uh, Check out Empire of Deception. Uh, If you're interested in kind of a hodgepodge of true crime tales from Dean's home, Nova Scotia, um, check out uh, Daring, Devious, and Deadly. I've included links to both of those in the description of this episode in your podcast app. So check those out if you enjoy true crime and if you like today's podcast. Without further ado, Dean Job. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories. Dean Job, uh, big welcome back to you. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me back. This is uh, this is your third time joining us here. Well, maybe that's a record, is it? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it is a record, actually. You're the, you're oh, the first okay. time person. For listeners who haven't heard your uh, previous uh, books on the podcast, um, Uh, Tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and your work as a true crime historian. Well, I I got into this game long before it had its resurgence, I guess, the true crime uh, renaissance or uh, explosion of the last few years. I was a court reporter for a daily newspaper. Background was in history, um, writing about 
historic or or old cases that were interesting to me just seemed a natural progression. So uh, 20, 30 years ago, I was writing about local stories and uh, um, I've just kept up with it. And uh, I'm always interested in, because I'm a journalist, I I want to scoop. So I want the stories that are sitting out there and have been forgotten, but not forgotten because they're not interesting, just uh, overlooked. So um, when we first spoke, we spoke about a book called Empire of Deception, which was about a uh, Chicago Ponzi schemer in the 1920s named Leo Kortz that no one had heard of. Uh, And uh, he was so prolific that actually the Ponzi scheme named for Charles Ponzi in Boston, uh, he had been at this doing a pyramid scheme for a decade or more before that. And in fact, his investors started calling him our Ponzi as a joke because they were making so much money, not realizing he was a Ponzi. And, <laughs> and, uh, and it got weirder from there because when he escapes, he escapes to where I live, uh, the province of Nova Scotia. So it actually went from a Chicago to uh, a story in my own backyard, at least a hundred years ago. Then we spoke about a, a book we, I did uh, called Deadly, A Daring, Devious and Deadly about Nova Scotia true crime that I'd issued and uh about, have an anthology it was an anthology of cases from about 200 years of Nova Scotia history and uh again just uh my interest in these quirky stories so this was everything from from fraud to robbery to murder and uh and Nova Scotia seems to be um, a crossroads in a way uh, lots of uh, interesting fugitives uh, a bank robbery that occurred during a parade by Burnham Circus in Halifax, things like that. So, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I find these cases are just so engaging and I hope they're engaging for readers, but there's such a great window on the past. I mean, the, the stakes and the drama are there with true crime. I mean, there's been a horrific or some kind of crime's been committed. There has to be an investigation. Sometimes there's a manhunt. There's always intent, inherent uh, drama. But they also say so much about the time, uh, whether it's the gullibility of of the uh, uh, anything goes era of the 1920s that led to the stock market crash that I looked at in Empire, or uh, just uh, issues of class and race that uh, bubble to the surface from uh, the old cases I do, which brings us to Dr. Cream, which brings with it a host of of insights into Victorian society, Uh, not all of it very very attractive. Yeah, you do a really good job of picking interesting cases. And one thing I I was wondering when I was reading them, just, you know, how do you find these people? because not, not not to call them outlandish, but their stories are are so incredible. They're they're just they're they're these stranger than fiction, true stories, and I love them. Well, I I should point out they're they're totally nonfiction. Uh, as a journalist, I uh, accuracy and and fact above all, um, but they often do read like like fiction, which is why I'm very heavy on endnotes, so people realize that. Uh, uh, that I haven't embellished this. And I, I don't think any of these uh, stories have to be embellished, but where do I find them is, it's really, um, uh, these are, sometimes they're names I, I trip over when I'm researching another case. 
Um, I, I sometimes think maybe I hang with the wrong crowd, historically speaking, that I run into <laughs> some of these characters. Uh, but Cream, uh, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream, is just one of these shadowy, uh, he's almost a caricature of the Victorian villain. I mean, I've got pictures in the book of him with the, the top hat and the, the smug expression. And uh, uh, I mean, he looks like... Uh, you know, he looks like the mustachioed uh, uh, victim that would be tying a damsel to the railway tracks or something like that. <laughs> Whirling his mustache. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But he, um, but I, so I knew a bit about his case. And, and, and again, he was a serial killer in the Victorian era. And uh, by my reckoning, and I, I think this is close as we'll ever get to the truth of how many he killed, uh, a death toll of at least 10 in three countries. And what intrigued me again, I guess I looked at it and said, well, so what? And the so what is usually, well, what does this mean, either to us now or our understanding of the past? And what I really thought was the best lens for looking at all of these horrific murders that uh, Cream uh, committed, that he was a serial poisoner. So people, his victims died horrible deaths from strychnine poisoning. I wanted to know how he got away with it. That's why the subtitle is The Hunt for a Victorian Era, Victorian era Serial Killer, because I wanted that to be the, uh, the lens or the, or the theme of the through line. How did he, not just what he was doing, but how did he continually get away with it in three countries over this time span, uh, especially when <laughs> concurrently he was often doing everything he could to draw attention to himself. Yeah, and we'll get to that. That's definitely a question I want to ask you uh, about because that's seemed odd to me and interesting. But um, you know, we'll, we'll get there eventually. But the way your book starts was also interesting to me because in the prologue, it starts with him getting out of jail, and that's something I didn't expect. So, so tell us, situate us there a little bit. Well, I start with uh, Thomas Neal Cream emerging from Joliet Prison, uh, Illinois State Prison in Joliet, Illinois, after serving uh, 10 years of a life sentence for murder. Mm -hmm. uh, this, uh, it's hard, where do you start? You know, do you start at the beginning? Do you start with one of his murders? Uh, my editor at Algonquin Books, uh, the American publisher, Amy Gash came up with this idea. And again, it was just trying to think of where can you bring the reader into the story at a point where you can have the mystery or the, uh, uh, well, who is this guy? What's he been in prison for? And I was able to, to describe how easy it was for an ex-convict to disappear, which becomes very important to Cream because you meet him in 1891. He has already murdered at least six people. He's gone to prison for one. He's been acquitted at trial of another murder that he obviously committed. And other murders, uh, even if he was a suspect, he was never charged. So you're catching him midway, but he's also about to stage, he's going to a bigger stage. He's going to go to London, England and start preying on on women in this uh, impoverished neighborhood of Lambeth and become notorious as the Lambeth poisoner. And he's going to kill again. So uh, as, this as is following in, in the wake of the Jack the Ripper murders. Well, that's right. And he's going to London just three years after Jack the Ripper. And that was an important part of the story because one of the reasons 
uh, cream was able to get away with so many murders in so many places was the idea of the serial killer was still so novel. Jack the Ripper being one of the prime uh, uh, examples. H.H. Uh, Holmes in Chicago, uh, um, the famous uh, The Devil of the Devil in the White City, mm -hmm. um, hadn't, hadn't been caught yet and hadn't committed most of the murders he's been uh, have been attributed to him. So Cream was was really one of the first of what you could see in the the police reports, the press, a real um, uh, feeling that this was some kind of new monster that was emerging in Victorian society. Uh, one paper, the Chicago Tribune said, you know, this is someone who killed just for the sake of killing. I mean, that's how novel it was. It was, a, it was recognized as a new kind of murder. So yes, he comes very closely on the heels of Jack the Ripper and of course kills uh, uh, mostly sex workers in an impoverished area of London, just like the Ripper had in uh, three years before. So you definitely get the sense that, that the detective field is trying to to grapple and process with this type of killer, something something novel, like you said. Um, what was the status of detective work in the 1880s and 1890s? One of the challenges I had was I'm working over a 15 year period because Cream's incarceration interrupts his murder spree. He really kills 10 people in about five years, all told. Um, so I had to, to get a sense of what was the state of policing and detection in three different countries at three different stages of development, some of them small areas, almost rural areas, some of them big cities like Chicago. And uh, ultimately, the best window I had was Scotland Yard. I mean, the, the, uh, the premier uh, or one of the premier uh, detective and, and policing agencies on the planet in the 1890s. And fortunately, thick files of that investigation are, are at the National Archives in London. And I was able to see almost day by day, report by report, uh, witness statement by witness statement, see just how the police, the miscues, the missed, the missed opportunities, the, the failure to put murders together, um, and how this aided Cream. Uh, one, one of his first, his first victim in London um, even though it was clearly a case of strychnine poisoning, was attributed to um, uh, natural causes. The next death of a woman was it was was attributed to suicide, even though even the police said, "But I wonder how she got a hold of this restricted poison." Poison. So um, anyway, uh, so luck, miscues, but it was really intriguing to see. So um, the policing. The, the detective, the professional detective was just something that was starting to come into to play. And, but in, uh, in uh, lockstep with that was the problem that forensics were still pretty crude. They could uh, uh, detect strychnine, but uh, some of the experiments they used, uh, I described one of them was the best they could do to, to say, well, the, is this strychnine is to uh, inject uh, inject uh, fluid recovered from cadavers into a frog or a mouse and see if the death throes look like death by strychnine. I mean, it's pretty primitive 
forensics. Yeah, in, in one case, I think you said they, they fed part of the victim's stomach to a cat to, to see if the cat died. That had been done in a, a similar case at that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, in Cream's case, I think it was uh, frogs. And of course, the defense lawyer was kind of trying to make the obvious case for a, a non-scientific minded jury. Isn't there a lot of difference between a human being and a frog <laughs> in terms of what you might see? Uh, but all of that was was fascinating. But again, it just it was so important to underpinning and explaining uh, my central question. How on earth did this guy get away with it for so long and so many deaths? So can you, without giving too much away, just kind of briefly describe his, his early uh, murders there as the Lambeth Poisoner and kind of Scotland Yard's first efforts to, to look into it, or half-hearted efforts, I guess. Well, um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I do recognize that as I'm going through these records. And um, it was intriguing to think that, you know, here's the police agency that uh, has been widely criticized for blowing the Ripper investigation. So only three years before, they were facing this mad slasher in Whitechapel. And there's echoes of that. But I almost got the sense that the Ripper seemed to be a one-off at that time. Like Cream is the next serial, next major serial killer that hits London. And, um, you know, it's obviously, uh, it's a different method, but um, piecing together, there still was this problem. It, it hadn't captured the popular imagination that, uh, that any fiend would kill and kill and kill like the Ripperhead and like Cream did, but really just for the sake of, of bloodlust or killing. So um, he comes to uh, London and, um, uh, a quick backstory. He is an accredited doctor. Uh, he born in Scotland, came to uh, Quebec City in Canada as a child, went to McGill Medical School, one of the, the best medical schools in North America. And when he got out, started to kill women, killed his uh, young bride, uh, was his first victim, killed a female patient in Canada. Uh, when he was a suspect in that murder, he skipped to the United States killed four more people in Illinois, eventually went to prison. So when he gets out, um, he has had a lots of chance to hone his craft for want of a better word. So when he came to London, he was a formidable adversary. He had figured out how to, uh, in, uh, to put uh, strychnine in gelatin capsules, which were a fairly new thing, but were you know, time release, release type capsule. We're used to that now. Mm -hmm. It was a new thing, especially in England at the time, but he had figured out he could disguise the bitter taste of strychnine. It's hard to get someone to willingly take strychnine and it's hard to mask, but his medical training, many knew this. So he starts distributing these pills to women he selected in a, in a ghoulish way. He certainly, uh, uh, he frequented uh, prostitutes in, uh, in Lambeth. Some of them he selected to kill. He, and uh, he, uh, he was a doctor. He wasn't licensed to practice, but uh, uh, his victims trusted him because he was a doctor. A doctor offers a pill, says it'll help with some minor malady, and uh, 
the victim, unfortunately, trusts them to their peril. So uh, it took Scotland Yard a long time to identify cream and something that had benefited cream in the past. It also took them a long time to get their head around. And you can see this in the files. Some of the lead detectives were like discounting him because he was a doctor and somehow that didn't register with them that he could also be the serial killer they're looking for. His status as a doctor often shielded him from, from uh, suspicion. Um, he kind of seems to consciously leverage that. Oh, yes. I mean, one of, his, one of his defenses when he was acquitted of a murder in Chicago after a botched operation, his, his, uh, his lawyer said, He's, look, at, look at his degree from McGill. Look at his uh, license from uh, the University of Edinburgh, uh, which was sort of the gold seal of uh, medical training, and uh, said to the jury, you know, how could he have done such a, uh, how could he have been the butcher who did this job? And he's acquitted. One of many examples. Um, but when you're saying he leveraged it, uh, there's a whole subtext uh, here that emerges of cream, writing letters, uh, casting blame, muddying the waters, forging documents that becomes, that escalates throughout his murders to the point where he's actually uh, trying to, sending blackmail letters to innocent people who happen to be prominent, accusing them of murders he's committed, trying to get money out of them, even though he never collects. It's, um, and some of these letters, uh, he very carelessly writes in his own handwriting. Others, he had someone else write. And these ultimately start tying him to the murders. And this becomes uh, key to cracking the case. Yeah, this is the, the strange thing that he does. And it seems to be uh, compulsive in, in, in a way. Because realistically, he could have poisoned these women. And if he just laid low no one would have ever no one ever would have suspected him but he keeps putting himself into the center of the investigation again and again well it's it's like he's a moth to a flame it's like he can't help himself because you know again for your listeners this is after he's committed six murders and spent 10 years in prison and he'd already tried some of these shenanigans with forced note, forged letters. In a couple of cases, he poisoned women and tried to blackmail a druggist saying they had messed up the prescription and put strychnine in. That didn't work, but he kept on. Well, if madness is defined as, as doing something over and over again, expecting a different result, Cream had this, this madness in him. It was almost like he, not so much that he wanted to be caught, but he was so reckless that, uh, and there was some speculation afterwards, one of the uh, Scotland Yard investigators, not directly involved in the case, but a senior manager there, was of all things, and this is in the book, chatting with the trial judge and saying that, well, what, what would have prompted Cream? And, and the, the sort of conclusion was that he couldn't help himself. He, would, he felt he was so clever and so skilled he had to somehow draw attention to himself. He had to somehow be validated or have the world know how clever he was. Because not only is he writing these dangerous letters, dangerous for his freedom, mm -hmm. he even starts hanging out with some Scotland Yard policemen. 
going to bars and talking about the murders. And at first they think, well, he's just into the local gossip mill. But finally, uh, some, uh, uh, well, finally, because Cream's final act is he kills two women in the same night. That really made Scotland Yard stand up and, and take notice. And suddenly he went from this kind of eccentric character on the, on the edge of Lambeth's lowlife uh, or wild side to uh, a guy who knew too much and uh, was worthy of suspicion. And that's when things finally turned. All right, so we talked about how um, Dr. Cream kind of exploited uh, you know, his status as, as, as a doctor and the expectations of a doctor to his advantage. Um, but how did he also kind of exploit uh, Victorian society and a lot of its prejudices? Well, uh, one of the, the nine out of Cream's 10 victims were women and invariably uh, they were two, two classes really, uh, the uh, sex workers of, of Lambeth. But before that in North America, in Canada and in Chicago, uh, they were women who uh, uh, were trying to end unwanted pregnancies. They were seeking uh, an illegal abortion and Victorian society uh, was so rigid about uh, the idea of a, of a birth out of wedlock that these women were desperate and Cream was happy to provide this service. And uh, so unlike a Jack the Ripper who's out there stalking women, Cream's victims are coming to him. They're seeking him out. They're coming to him in desperation and he is just so cruelly betraying that trust He's giving them what he says is, is medicine that would induce a miscarriage, uh, which was a, a common form of, of, uh, of attempted abortion at the time. But what he was giving them was medication laced with strychnine that he knew would kill them. So uh, that was a, a, an absolutely uh, uh, appalling and, and chilling aspect of this uh, story of how he abused his position as a doctor. And um, uh, and in a sense, played God. I mean, he, he by, all, by my research, he did have, at times, busy practices. He had other patients. He didn't kill everybody he came in contact with. But for some reason, he decided some of these patients, some of these women would die and some would live. And uh, that is just absolutely uh, sort of the most uh, nightmarish aspect of this nightmarish story. And his unwitting accomplice in that uh, are the attitudes of Victorian society that were so uh, misogynistic and uh, so close-minded uh, about women women who were desperate and desperate straits. And, and a lot of these women are people who Victorian society would, wouldn't necessarily miss. That's right. I mean, uh, one thing I tried to do was give some dignity back to the victims. Mm-hmm. Um, there hasn't been a lot written on Cream, not, not many books. But one thing, um, in, when I've seen his story retold in, say, in anthologies and things, um, victims' names are wrong. Uh, victims aren't even identified. And I really tried to do some research to find out more about, you know, the woman who was a waitress 
and uh, trying to support her ailing mother back in Canada. The, the woman who uh, had gone to uh, an eye clinic and stayed on to volunteer. I mean, these were just women, single women struggling in a society where it was tough to be a single woman. Mm. And they made a mistake. They went to Cream thinking he could help them. Mm. And this became his pool of victims. So, um, so I thought that was important. And, uh, you know, that these, uh, uh, these weren't just, uh, the, the 10 wasn't a statistic. It's, uh, these were real people. And, uh, um, and they uh, just unfortunately, you know, crossed, pa crossed paths with the wrong person. And, you know, we talked about resonance to today. You know, these are, these are still lingering problems in a lot of ways. That's right. I mean, I talk about the Yorkshire Ripper case, you know, where uh, uh, a truck a truck driver was preying on sex workers in uh, in England. Um, the uh, and uh, there were uh, references in some of the police reports at Scotland Yard to the unreliability of these women, meaning the sex workers of Lambeth, mm -hmm. who uh, the police were trying to question to find out more about victims or this mysterious man they were trying to identify that turned out to be cream. Um, so you saw some of those attitudes, the, the idea that they, uh, uh, not that they deserved what had happened, but they were putting themselves in peril and uh, 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 somehow this was their fault. You did see echoes of that at times. Now, being that he's a, he's a, a poisoner in the, in the late 1800s, um, murders involving poisons, that's, that's kind of an investigator's worst nightmare. Why is that? Well, partly because of um, sanitary conditions and, uh, and, um, and epidemics and disease at the time, um, many poisons mimicked uh, the kind of, uh, of symptoms or death throes that you might get from uh, natural causes or or disease strychnine um, is actually known for um, horrible uh, uncontrollable uh, muscle spasms and contortions and they're called titanic because uh, they mimic the uh, the uh, uh, signs of tetanus poisoning or tetanus so um, skilled doctors could tell the difference usually but, but that, that did point to this problem of, it was an era when death could come swiftly, could come to young and old. Uh, infant mortality rates were just appalling, appallingly high. So um, it did mean that coupled with uh, the limits of forensic testing and um, well, arsenic before Cream's time had been the, the, uh, uh, the uh, poison of choice for a poisoner readily available it was it was uh it was used for a, a tons of household products or in rat poison not to interrupt but when you say readily available i mean how easy was it to get this stuff well until i think you say in the book till the 1840s it wasn't even restrictive mm -hmm. uh as far as i know you could get as much as you wanted and uh there were regulations brought in but most importantly a test to detect arsenic came in and that was the big deterrent. But then strychnine was one of a family of plant alkaloids, they're called, plant toxins. 
that were being discovered through the late 1800s. And the toxin being discovered, there would be a lag before the test to uh, uh, identify could be uh, developed. So that was the kind of world that it almost became, I, I've seen it described almost as an arms race to uh, figure out uh, which could, um, which would, uh, uh, which would win out? Who would, uh, uh, you know, would the poisoners, the poisoners were in ascendancy until uh, the tests, until the scientists could come up with the tests to detect what they were, were using. Um, and strychnine was one of those, uh, those poisons. So how does the, the, the media and the general public take to all this? Um, you know, you talk quite a bit in the book about how the public's becoming really intrigued with detective fiction, uh, like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, how's the public relating, or reacting to stories in the paper about we might have another serial killer? On the well, an intriguing aspect of this uh, for me was the, uh, uh, the timing. Uh, Cream's Crimes in London, 1891-92, perfectly, almost perfectly coincide with the first dozen Sherlock Holmes stories, which is what puts Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, uh, their meteoric rise in, detect that, uh, uh, the, in detection, the detective fiction. And in fact, in the midst of Cream's rampage, uh, the, the Strand Magazine publishes the uh, Adventure of the Speckled Band story. And that's the one where uh, Holmes says to Watson, the doctor who kills is the first of criminals. He has the nerve and he has the knowledge. And eerily, a uh, doctor turned wrong named Cream was using his nerve and knowledge to murder people right under Conan Doyle's nose. So it all became part and parcel. But what was, and, and another aspect that was really interesting to me was the, uh, uh, the, the chasm between what detectives could do and thanks to the sort of lightning fast deductions of Sherlock Holmes and his ability to close a case in 4,000 words, um, the public really got to expect so much more, uh, you know, to expect almost instant service. Like, why can't our detectives be more like Sherlock Holmes? And it was really intriguing for me to get uh, memoirs of uh, retired inspectors who had served in the 1890s and just see how much they detested Sherlock Holmes <laughs> because it made their job so much harder. And one of them even said, well, it's not a parlor game. You know, it's not, you know, Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle made detection look easy, mm -hmm. you know? And as a result, even the most skilled detectives felt, um, you know, that they were being held to too high a standard. So that was, was part of it, but also that um, there was this, uh, the rise in detection fiction but it was such interest in uh, true crime. I mean, it was amazing for, for me again, as I said at the outset, I mean, we're in this uh, era of, uh, of exploding interest in true crime. But uh, a quote I spotted in my research uh, said, uh, there's nothing that the, the average newspaper reader wants more than the goriest of murders with all the trimmings. I mean, that sounds like something you could write today, but that was actually in the Chicago Tribune in 1880. So 
for better or for worse, human nature, or at least our, our interest in true crime, may have ebbed and flowed, but it's not a new thing. And, uh, uh, and that was a really interesting aspect of this. I mean, when you go back to that era, I mean, this is front page news, and uh, they didn't have court TV, but they would publish verbatim testimony of trials. And if it took three pages of a four page daily newspaper, which was typical at the time, they'd do it. And people tuned in every day to get the update. Well, that's right. I mean, they, uh, the newspapers wouldn't publish it if there wasn't an insatiable demand to read it. Right. And uh, so uh, that's kind of, and that's one of the things I like about is seeing that the more things change, in the less in some ways they change. So that, uh, that interest in uh, uh, true crime uh, existed even then. Yeah, you you could easily picture there being a true crime podcast if podcasts were around. Well, that's right, and uh, and as I said, uh, the uh, I mean to think of it, if you picked up, uh, well, do people still pick up newspapers? But let's say you you log on to your uh, uh, news website, and uh, and there's a link to the entire testimony of the previous day's important trial in your town. Uh, that's what they you know would you do that? Well interest was such as at the time that yeah people would do that we just watched three non-stop weeks of johnny depp and amber heard so <laughs> that's right so uh so what i guess i'm saying is is don't feel as bad about that as maybe you, you thought you did <laughs> so i guess the the last thing i want to ask you is um you know people are like we talked about are still fascinated with true crime and serial killers um you know why do you think it is that um uh thomas cream is not better known than he is you know people know a lot about jack the ripper they know a lot about you know ted bundy for instance um you know all serial killers why, why do you think that that cream isn't as well known well i, I i'm glad he wasn't um, and again, as I said, he was a, he was this figure that I had heard a lot about and seen references to, and there've been um, oddly there've been more fiction written based on his life than there have been books of uh, nonfiction. And in fact, there was a very good scholarly book called Prescription for Murder uh, in the early 1990s. Um, it was the only other major book. Uh, beyond the British uh, Notable Trials series, which he was, he was uh, uh, well known enough at the time. And uh, I quote in the book George Orwell talking about uh, uh, the British uh, interest or, or enthusiasm for murders uh, in the Sunday papers and saying, uh, you know, there are some uh, killers who uh, will never be forgotten. And one of them was Cream. And ironically, Cream was. And I'm not sure, maybe, maybe the fact that no one country could claim them in a way, uh, Canada's never really been like all that keen to claim them <laughs> as one of their own sons. Um, maybe because it's so complex, um, but you do, I do see that. I, I see fascinating cases that, uh, uh, that I wonder why they are better known. Um, I'm glad this one wasn't, but it, it also did, it, with a lot of threads and a lot of uh, 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 information to be drawn together. I mean, I did 
uh, I traveled to London. I traveled to spots in Canada and Chicago and a northern town called uh, Belvedere in Illinois, where he was where he was actually convicted in that city. Um, so um, it wasn't all in one place, and perhaps that's been more challenging in the past. Um, but uh, I've always, I obviously felt it was a story that did deserve to be better known, and uh, uh, and and I really think because of what it says about the era, his victims who were mostly women. All right. Well, um, your book is uh, it, it's an interesting murder tale. It's interesting window into what Victorian society was like. Um, a lot of things that I, I think people uh, tend to forget how society used to be. Uh, so if people are interested in this tale and they want to learn a little bit more, uh, where can they go? They can go anywhere. Uh, it's published in the, in the United States by uh, Algonquin Books. Uh, it was published last year. It's coming out in paperback in July. Uh, HarperCollins Canada has published it here. Uh, it's actually being translated into French and Japanese. Uh, so those editions are coming. And uh, so it's available uh, uh, bookstores everywhere and of course online. And uh, people can uh, check out my website, uh, deanjobb.com, for more information on that and other books and links. Okay. Well, Dean, thank you so much for joining us again. Well, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. A uh, big thank you to Dean for coming back on the podcast uh, to share his knowledge and just all the, the really good research that he does uh, when he writes these books. Um, and big thank you to you, the listeners. Uh, it means a lot uh, whenever you come and hang out with me and uh, learn about some history. Uh, if you are uh, really enjoyed uh, the case of the murderous Dr. Cream, uh, there is some bonus Q&A with Dean over on Patreon. Uh, if you've been hanging out for a while, or if you're new, uh, and you'd like to stay in touch with the podcast, um, look up at CMTU History on uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok. Um, the show is also on YouTube if you like uh, to check out podcasts that way. Um, over the next uh, few weeks this summer, I uh, have a great lineup ahead. Um, definitely becoming a busy year with the podcast, um, especially since it's the, the first few months after a year-long hiatus. Uh, so next up will be another returning guest, uh, Eric J. Dolan, uh, who writes Maritime History, uh, will be joining us to talk about uh, privateering during the American Revolution. Uh, and after that, uh, I recently wrapped up an interview uh, with David Hendy from the UK, who has written a great history uh, commemorating the 100-year uh, span of the BBC. Uh, so really interesting history uh, about uh, the corporation, as they call it in the UK, uh, about their history. Uh, and then looking into the more distant future, I'll be talking with Mark Lee Gardner, um, his book, The Earth is All That Lasts, uh, diving into some uh, history of indigenous peoples uh, here in uh, America, looking at Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, uh, and the Sioux Nation. So looking forward to that. Um, and also, uh, recently got another book in the mail, um, 
really excited about this. It is a book uh, about uh, King Arthur uh, that I can't wait to tell you more about. Um, super cool. It's very well illustrated in kind of a Lord of the Rings fashion. So plenty of stuff to look forward to. Uh, I look forward to seeing you guys again in a few weeks. Bye. Hey, and one more thing I want to mention. Um, if you subscribe to the podcast, uh, you might have noticed that the last couple of episodes to pop up uh, were just these little mini episodes. They're like six minutes long uh, that I do with my kids. Um, I know they're kind of silly. Uh, you know, uh, my son talked about dinosaurs. My daughter talked about, uh, you know, opined about UFOs and and fangirled over uh queen elizabeth but um you know like over a hundred people downloaded each of those uh and checked them out um so i just wanted to say thank you to that i know they're not really history and they they're not really tied with what i'm doing here but uh it meant a lot to them they think it's super cool that a hundred people across the globe listen to them um so just thank you so much for listening to them. That, that means a lot to them, and it means a lot to me. You guys are really a great audience.